Welcome to another episode of LifeWords Q&A. Great to have your company. I hope you've been, been uh, enjoying our previous episodes. We were counting the other day that we've covered 75 of your questions since we started middle of last year. Anyway, great to have you. David, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to see you again in the new year. Yeah, mm. this is LifeWords Q&A, and it's uh, our chance to answer your questions. And if you would like to submit a question to David... It's very easy. It is uh, lifewords at hopemedia.com.au. And David, our first question for a new year is, what is the best Bible translation to use? Well, Andrew, that depends on the reader, I suppose. There are, Thank God that we've got a lot of good Bible translations. Um, many, many years ago, you only had one or two. You see, all Bible translations are generally on a bit of a spectrum. On one on one end of the spectrum, one end of the line, there's there's Bible translations which are very readable. You can easily understand them, but they may not quite literally translate the original. In other words, they might not be quite as accurate. Then you've got others up the other end of the line that are pretty accurate. They really do reflect the original language very, very well, but they're not as easy to read. So, so, so what you've got to do is to choose, well, am I going to go for a bit more accuracy and literalness or am I going to go for a bit more readability? Now, now, whatever you choose, whatever translation you choose, and I'll mention a couple specifically in a moment, whatever you choose, you're not going to be led astray. I think that's what I want okay. to say. Is there's no there's no sense of, oh, if you go for a more readable translation, you're missing out on the Word of God. There's nothing like that at all. But then again, if you're, say, doing a course of theological study, you might want to choose an English translation that is perhaps a little bit more faithful to the original. So it very much depends on the reader. Someone who's been a Christian for many, many years might want a particular translation. Someone who's just inquiring into being a Christian, they may well want another. I remember when Eugene Peterson released the message, it was like, wow, this guy's talking jive talk. It's uh, very contemporary. <laughs> and I guess he, he, some people love that version of the Bible because um, it's sort of made into a story. Right. Others think it's uh, he's straight from the pits of uh, not heaven. Yes, well, that's such a pity. I have had people actually uh, suggest that uh, Peterson's got it all wrong. I think the message is fantastic. I've yep. got it on my shelf and I refer to it often. I use it in uh, my life words uh, that comes out through this radio station quite often. Look, the message is what we call a paraphrase. Yep. Eugene Peterson's a highly respected biblical scholar. He's, he's not just a paperback writer. He's a, he's a respected scholar. And I think he has done a good job of, of paraphrasing the original. He's not pretending that each and every phrase is what the Greek or the Hebrew said. He knows what the Greek or Hebrew said. He's not going to lead you astray. And sometimes I think he's colloquial and Americanisms are perhaps a little bit too much, but that's 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 the price you pay for trying to communicate the message to people who perhaps are not very used to what we might call religious language. Look, I wouldn't be using the message as my only Bible translation, but I tell you what, if if I'm going to have a, a, a repertoire or, or a diet of translations, I think the message would be one of them mm. because it is it is a, an attempt to communicate in living real language just what the Bible might be saying. And of course, in 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 fifty years time, uh, it might be seen to be out of date because language does change. Yep. We can't just simply confine ourselves necessarily to one translation or to assume that one translation is the word of God. 
there, there are people, I think there's still some around who still tend to believe the King James Version or Authorised Version, it's the Word of God and nothing else matters. Well, there's no biblical evidence or historical evidence for that. In fact, the King James Version, while it was good in its time, is not based on very good manuscripts because it only had a limited number of manuscripts in which to draw upon. And, and so therefore, through no fault of its own, it's not as accurate and good as some more contemporary translations, even though you might like the that sort of English that it's couched in. Look, I think you should have on your shelf at, at least um, one Bible, such as the Message or the New Living Translation, which I think is a wonderful Bible, a good compromise between the paraphrase and the more literal translation, yeah. um, and, uh, and the Message or the New Living Translation. And you've got other more what we might call conservative translations like the New International Version, the New Revised Standard, the English Standard Version. Look, None of them is going to lead you astray, and 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 I think that it's good to have one or two, and to perhaps say, look, for this particular month, for the month of February, I think I'll use the New Living Translation. For the month of March, I might have a look at the Message. Hey, for the month of April, I might have a look at, say, the um, New Revised Standard. Yep. None of them is going to lead you astray, and what it, whenever you find a Bible with which you are comfortable and you feel, yes, it. I can read this, I can comprehend it, I can understand it, and I do believe it's faithful to the original. Well, you jolly will stick with it. And I guess it's handy to have the uh, NIV study Bible kind of type where you've got some explanations of terminology and uh, I guess bringing it back to what that meant at the time it's quite helpful to have that kind of study Bible element to to. Oh to yeah, yes, a study Bible is great. Um, the only problem of course is with study Bibles you've got to be careful that the study notes uh, are in a sense commentaries on mm. the text and not the text themselves. Yes. Uh, the, 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 the study notes are not themselves the word of God but oh yes I think that's um, absolutely wonderful. Let me tell you just a short personal anecdote on this that Many years ago, um, shows you how old I am, but uh, uh, the King James Version was still very much the current version. And I was a young fellow at school and, and I think loved the Lord at the time, but I just found the Bible so hard to understand. I had my little Gideon's Bible and I could not understand a lot of it. And then finally came the wonderful time. I, David Ray, won a special scripture prize at high school and my prize was a revised standard version. And I I really thought I'd died and gone to heaven because here at last was a Bible that I could read. But funnily enough, that was back in the 60s. Now, funnily enough, many years later, the RSV is considered to be rather old hat and it's been revised. Yeah. It just shows you how language um, changes. But I, what I'm, why I share that anecdote is that it is vital to put into people's hands a Bible that they really can understand. And yes, 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 you have to have to sacrifice just a little bit of literal accuracy. That's okay at the beginning. Uh, let's start where people can truly read the Bible rather than giving up after the first couple of sentences. You're listening to LifeWords Q&A with David Ray. Hi, I'm Andrew Morris. Thanks for joining us. You can download all our previous episodes at hope1032.com.au. It's well worth having a listen. There's some really great questions that you guys have submitted over the course of the last six months. Our second question, David, this is like me thinking, should I go to the Easter show on Good Friday? It's another one of those kind of questions. It's uh, some of my friends have got or are getting tattoos. I've heard that this is condemned in the Bible. Are they right or wrong? Ah, David. Oh, well. Mm. There's a lot of tattoos around at the moment. It is. It's now becoming sort of passe, isn't it? Sort well, of everyone's got a tat. Well, 
and or I haven't. Um, Neither do I. But, I but apart from you and me, I mean, everyone's got tats. Maybe the new cool is not to have tats. <laughs> That's right. Look, um, I, I did have people say to me at one stage, uh, oh, I've seen some young Christian uh, men and women with tattoos and um, I've read in the Bible that it's uh, unbiblical. Uh, I think my I then had to scratch my head and say, where on earth does the Bible talk about tattoos? And apparently what these people were saying is there's a statement in the Old Testament and it was regarding the forbidding of body piercing you do not mark your body yeah you don't defile you that's right but when i looked at the context of that it was in the context of pagan worship practices it was self-mutilation in order to somehow rather satisfy this pagan deity um so yes that sort of self-mutilation of course is wrong and and i think mutilating your body which is valuable to god is also wrong but but some people think that mutilating uh putting a tattoo on your skin is is mutilation whereas i would question that now having said right at the outset I wouldn't want to do that in a million years uh, submit myself to getting a tattoo um, but I, I I think it's a bit of a stretch to say it is mutilating your body okay. I, I think many people would say it is decorating your body now whether you you personally like it or not yep. it's another matter but but the the people I know who are Christians and who wear tattoos uh, would never see it as as mutilation uh, they would rather see it this is actually helping decorate this body which I value in God. So I I, I think to say the Bible forbids it is actually going too far. It's reading the Bible out of context. When the Bible talks about self-mutilation, it is talking about doing great damage to your own body, which I think responsible tattooing actually doesn't necessarily do. Uh, And also it's talking in the context of a pagan worship ceremony. Now, I think the problem the problem with tattoos can be that if they themselves are pagan or glorify wickedness or obscene or pornographic or anything like that, well, I think you've got a problem. It's the same with bumper stickers or T-shirts mm. or anything like that. It's the content that's the problem. So, so um, I, I personally think in the end it's a question of personal taste and wisdom. You see, if someone said to me, I think I should get a tattoo, I'd say, well, are you going to be prepared to remove it? You know, if your dearly beloved is called such and such a name and you want such and such a name adorned on you, well, what happens if your dearly beloved and you have a bit of a bust up and you don't want the name anywhere near you? Um, it, they can be hard to remove. But I think my own personal tastes and these is issues of wisdom and discretion about tattooing are quite different from a biblical prohibition. So I'd say, no, I don't think the Bible prohibits them as such. But if you're going to do it, um, there's there's wisdom and discretion to be applied. I think this is probably, a, uh, for me, uh, this is an issue probably where prejudices come into play, uh, teachings or um, when, when you're a young Christian growing up, being... Un- Put under teaching that maybe gave that impression that music, certain music, or certain oh, yeah. certain uh, certain things in life are, are not godly, and so it's very hard to break those. It's, it's a very religious kind of thinking, isn't it? Oh, it, it? is. It is. We, we are very much products of, um, I was told when I was growing up, certain things were totally unbiblical and wrong, and now while I look at it, I think, wait a minute, um, they might not have been preferential, they might not have been wise, but, but I mean, there's many things we've been brought up with to, to assume that they're wrong. And I think with tattoos, getting back to them, is is that they're often associated with big, hairy, outlaw bikers who, who we think, oh, we want nothing to do with them. Well, hang on, um, you know, a, a bearded biker who goes around with tattoos may well be honouring Jesus Christ as much as anyone else. Uh, we know that from groups like the God Squad and so on. Okay. Um, uh, but, but yes, we, we, we sometimes, I think, assume that something is wrong and sinful 
uh, without actually questioning, is it actually wrong or sinful, or is it simply something that we don't like? Mm. And that's very different. You're listening to LifeWords Q&A with David Ray. Hi, I'm Andrew Morris. Thanks for joining us. If you've got a question that you would like David to uh, answer and you've been pondering, uh, the email to do that is lifewords at hopemedia.com.au. You can check out previous podcasts at our website, which is hope1032.com.au, or go to the iTunes store and search for Hope Media and subscribe to the LifeWords Q&A podcast. We'd love your company. Okay, our final question for today, David, is what does the Bible mean when it says we're made in God's image and likeness? Well, the first thing to say is what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean anything to do with physical likeness. We might say to a, a, a young child, dear, you are the spitting image of your father or your mother. Well, we're not talking about that because, first of all, we, we don't ascribe such a physical characteristic to God. Um, I think image and likeness means, and, and they're much the same, incidentally, the words are pretty similar. It means we bear something of God's characteristics. We bear somehow out of the mark of God. And I think it means a few things. I think it means certainly that we have value and dignity. Anyone who, as it were, in any way resembles God and has the mark of God in him or her, well, it must mean they've got value and dignity. They're not worthless. And also, I think the image and likeness of God refers to our capacity for relationship because God is a God of relationship. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Within the Trinity, they relate. Within the Godhead, they are relational. And it means that, therefore, we too can relate. And I think image and likeness of God in Genesis suggests that there are three relationships. We are made for a relationship with God. We are made for a relationship with one another. And we are made for a relationship with the world which is created. Um, So I think that's another aspect. We have value and dignity. We have capacity for relationship. And then the third sense, I think, in which um, image and likeness involves is that we have a moral sense. We can discern right and wrong. God, as the author of right and wrong, has planted in us something of his capacity to discern right and wrong. And so in that sense, we as human beings have that capacity to discern right and wrong, and so we can wisely govern the world that God has made. So I think image and likeness is summed up in all those ways. We have something of God with us, which which allows us to have value and dignity, allows us to relate to God, to one another and to the world, and it allows us to, in a good way, wisely govern the world. All that is because God has put something of himself in us. How, how do you, in terms of right and wrong and decisions and wisdom, uh, how would you describe that sense that you get that God is speaking to you inside? Is it a prompt? Is it, mm, I should, I've got this urge, I need to do this? Or um, how, how would you describe that? Well, I think it is an inner it is it's an inner prompting. I mean, some people would identify it with something called conscience. Um, and um, I think human beings, I believe, because we're made in the image of likeness of God, I think human beings have an innate, inbuilt understanding of what is right and wrong. Uh, and I think... When I am tempted to do wrong, I will generally know that. And I know it not by a voice telling me that. I know it by something that is very hard to describe, really. But this inner prompting which says, hey, this might not be right. And I think the very mysterious nature of that, the, it's, it, you can't really define it very precisely, I think is is one mark of the fact that we are made in God's image of likeness. There is something in us, however we can define it or describe it, there is something in us that causes us to be able to discern right and wrong. Now, of course, the big issue there is, of course, we, we, we may discern right and wrong, 
but we don't always choose it. Mm. And 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 I think I think you know when we say, well, are, are you arguing that a that a suicide bomber is made in God's image and likeness? That Adolf Hitler was made in God's image and likeness? They say, well, yes. Yes, of course they're made in God's image and likeness. Um, the Bible itself says that when Cain uh, commits his terrible sin against Abel, uh, God uh, Cain says, "Well, I'm going to be I'm going to be useless, I'm going to be worthless. Everyone will want to want, want to kill me." And God says in the book of Genesis, "No, you bear my mark." And 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 in other words, you are still a human being. And later on in Genesis, uh, the the people are still described as being in God's image and likeness, even in the same context. They are described as having wandered far away from Him. So, the image and likeness of God, which I've described, this this prompting to do right and wrong, to choose right rather than wrong, is always there, but it can be overridden. And blurred and marred, and mm. and some of the people I've just referred to, some very evil, wicked people, have 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 so crushed and suppressed the image and likeness of God in them that they uh, that 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 they they willfully choose what is wrong. But I'd still argue that they are still in the image and likeness of God, and 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 that's what makes their wrongdoing so culpable, so 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 sad, because they haven't just degenerated into mere animals. People sometimes say, well, that person's nothing more than an animal. Oh, yes, they are. They're actually a human being. And that's why we take human wrongdoing so seriously, because this human being is actually made in the image and likeness of God, this perpetrator of the evil. And of course, the victim of the evil is also made in the image and likeness of God. And so, yes, we have this innate sense of right and wrong, but sadly, we can suppress it and ignore it, which is what the Bible really calls sin, Mm. Um, but it doesn't remove our humanity. Whenever we sin, whenever we are desperately wicked, we remain human, and that gives human sin and wickedness this awful sort of uh, dimension. We say to ourselves, how on earth could a human being do that to another human being? And uh, we don't sort of say, why on earth would a savage lion kill an intruder? Well, that's what lions do. But we will say, how, why on earth should that human being kill another human being? Because it somehow doesn't, doesn't add up, because we're in the image and likeness of God. Thanks, David. Well, that's it for this episode of LifeWords Q&A. Uh, You can uh, listen to previous episodes at hope1032.com.au and subscribe to the LifeWords Q&A podcast through the iTunes store. David, thanks very much for your company. I look forward to our next occasion when we discuss more live Q&A questions. Thanks, Andrew.